We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19, if you need to grab your Bibles, uh, that's page 845 in the, the Coffee House Bibles. Let me just read our text and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16, this is the story of the rich young man and the kingdom of God. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus answered, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This morning we're continuing our series, Treasures in Heaven. Uh, this is part two called All In. Two weeks ago, Smith talked about uh, really gave the framework for how oftentimes money is deceptive in its nature, that it always overpromises and underdelivers. that as we search for uh, significance and security and satisfaction, we look for our possessions and money to fill that, but what we find out is that it is never enough. It is a false God of mammon, and what we need is God to rule our hearts and our lives, that all these things are simply just going to fade away. To, to no longer be anything anymore. They're not everlasting. I, I was thinking about this on my drive into church this morning, riding on Poplar. You know, they just redid the road. Uh, I think about the movie Cars right after Lightning McQueen fixes it and the kind of slow ride onto the new, the new main strip. Uh, it's great. Before, there's full of potholes and it's bumpy, and I feel like my car needed a realignment every time I rode on Poplar. Uh, but now it's amazing, just smooth riding on Poplar. But we know, though, here in a few years, coming into church, to, we'll see more potholes and more potholes, and soon again, they'll have to redo it again. That the things in this world simply do not last. That they rust and rot away. But what we put our hope in is in God, who is everlasting. So this guy is talking about the idea of money. What do we do with our wealth? What do we do with our possessions? And this opened up a really interesting conversation for Natalie and I, because we found ourselves on two opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, which we've known this for a while. Uh, I don't really think about money at all. Uh, don't think about it. Ah, we've got it. It's fine. The Lord will provide. But that doesn't really do true justice to, this, to the deceptive power of money, to how corruptive and corrosive it actually is. And then Natalie would say she's on the other end, the budgeter, the overthinker, the stressor about money. Um, a lot of times this extreme can then make us believe that we can manipulate money. We can control it, maintain it. If I, if I can budget it right, then it will, I will have power over it. It won't have power over me. But as we know, it just keeps building stress and stress and stress in our lives. So I was thinking about this sermon. It's like, well, this is great. I, I, my way is not good. You know, the other ways I know are not good. What is the Jesus way of, of taking care of our investments, the, the money that we have? Um, so that I think this is what Jesus is going to show us. And oftentimes, though, when we think about our treasures in heaven, there's another extreme that we have to be careful of. And it's either the all in or all of it all the time. And what I mean by that is often we seek significant security and comfort uh, and significance 
in our stuff. Uh, we see this with people who work 80-hour jobs. They go nonstop. They'll do anything to accomplish their dreams, goals, through their accomplishments, money, and wealth. Um, oftentimes, this is seen in like the extremes of workaholism. Um, when they go all in for this one thing, I'm going to put all my money on this one bet that what will bring me comfort and security is stuff. Uh, we also see this, though, with the pursuit of love. If I could just find my one person, if I could change who I am, find the right person, meet the right guy or girl, I'm going to put all my money on that, that that will be what is most satisfying. That is what's going to give me the fulfillment of joy of my life. Because I think that's what we're all looking for, is the good life, a life that is purposeful, meaningful, that is joy-filled, and we seek it in all these different things. But these extremes are like what we watch on TV, right? Like when we pursue love as our main thing, we watch The Bachelor and Married at First Sight. You know, it's entertaining. Not for many of us, this is not our real lives. We don't typically pick one thing. But I think for most of us, we, we go to the other extreme, is that we try to invest in every single thing imaginable out there. That there are so many things that this world offers that we just put a little bit into all of it, right? You think about uh, with school and kids and sports and family and friends, all these things is, well, maybe this will do it. Well, maybe this thing will be what brings me joy. Maybe this will be the thing that gives me the good life. We're, we're hedging our bets on what will bring uh, the significance of life. That if one of these may be the thing that ends up being the true meaning and purpose of my life. Oftentimes this is travel. If I can go to enough places, be the adventurous type of person, this is what's going to make me fulfilled. I remember I was talking to a student I worked with in Houston, Texas, a young girl who, uh, she was telling me that she just didn't feel connected. She didn't feel like she had significant friendship, significant community. So I just had her uh, tell me about, you know, who are the people you interact with every day? And she goes on to talk about her uh, chorus friends, her cheer friends, her volleyball friends, her uh, friends at youth group, friends in the neighborhood, family, siblings, she was rattling all these different people, surrounded by people, but still is feeling alone, disconnected. That's so often the problem in America is that there's so much abundance, so many things to do. We get lost in the shuffle of, well, what is the thing that I need to fully invest in? So we choose all of it and end up getting none of it. Uh, it seems to be the, the thing that we tend to choose. So I think we're left wondering, at least I'm left wondering, well, what am I supposed to do then? What is the true thing, the one thing that I can invest in that is going to bring me purpose and joy in life? Because so many of these things we can't just abstain from, right? Like, well, I have to have money because I have a mortgage and a car payment and insurance. I can't just give it my kids. I made them. I now have to take care of them, right? Uh, I have family that I need to watch after. Some of these things are just not optional. But then how do we hold them loosely enough to say, this does not rule my heart, this is not what my full investment is going to be in. What we need is, is not something that's short-term, that will rot away, not something that is a multitude, but we need one thing that is fuller, richer, and more everlasting than anything else. And Jesus is going to say that is the kingdom of God. So let's get into our text. We're going to be actually starting in Matthew chapter 13. So we're going to look at the story of the rich young man, uh, but we're going to begin with two short parables that Jesus offers in uh, Matthew 13. Let's read this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and, and bought that field. 
So what we're going to see is that these, these parables are really going to set a framework for uh, the encounter which the, with the rich young man. Jesus begins this parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like blank. It, it's, a, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. And to really appreciate this, we have to understand what Jesus' ministry really was. And that Jesus came proclaiming the good news and the gospel of the kingdom. And that, yes, that this gospel was that Jesus is going to die for our sins, forgive us so that we can be with Jesus in heaven for eternity. But when Jesus was in ministry, the gospel was that there is a kingdom coming that is happening now that we can participate in now, but is also something that is everlasting, that is near, it's at hand. Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this, uh, this way really well. Entering the kingdom of heaven is belonging in the present to the people who steer the earthly course by the standard and purpose of heaven, who are assured membership in the age to come. What I love about this parable is just the, the clarity of it. Uh, it it's, it's simple. A man found treasure. We don't know about what this man did. We don't know what type of field it was. We don't know what type of treasure it was, but that doesn't really seem to be Jesus' point. The point is he found a treasure. He sold everything he had to buy this field. It, it's, it's really simple. He sold everything, sacrificed it to obtain the kingdom of, in heaven. And this seems to come from that the man was full of joy, that what this man gave up did not create anxiety, did not create stress, did not create uh, you know, unhealthy codependency in something else. This man experienced the kingdom of heaven in some way, this treasure, and because of it was filled with great joy and from that sold everything to obtain it. That to have the good life seems to be going all in into the kingdom of heaven. What is interesting about this is Jesus doesn't really get into like the ethics of like finding a treasure, hiding it back, and then buying the field. Uh, you know, it's kind of maybe some questionable ethics there, but that again doesn't seem to be the point. The point is that the man didn't steal the treasure though, but that he did what was required to obtain it. That he hid it back again, went and sold all he had to purchase the field. And really what we're getting at this, there is no shortcuts into the kingdom of heaven. There's no shortcuts into the good life, the joyful life that God is inviting us into. So oftentimes money, possessions, things, sex, power, those are quick pleasures that we can have right now. We can have it in a moment. But again, our souls seem to want and desire something more meaningful, more richer than what we can just have right now. So we also need to notice the hiddenness of this treasure, um, that it was, nobody could see it, that it, there, it was just a normal field, probably like hundreds and dozens of other fields out there, but the man found this hidden treasure. Again, a thing with money and wealth is that uh, what we love about it is that we can quantify it, we can hold it, we can count it, we can budget it up and say, this is what I have, it's, it's control, it's, it's, it's I can quantify exactly what it gives me, what it could purchase for me. But the kingdom of heaven is something that is unquantifiable, which at the same time is exactly what we need, but so hard to live into. That what our souls really desire is, is everything. It's the creator of heaven and earth, but at the same time, it's intangible. We, we can't see it. We can't count it. We can't measure it. But it is the thing that our hearts are longing for, that we desire so notice, though, he gives this out of joy, um, in his joy. Uh, this is interesting because the man didn't sell everything and then receive joy. This isn't a transaction that the man experienced the kingdom of God, knew the joy of the Lord, and because of that went and sold 
everything that he had. The kingdom gives out of its abundance. It does not take, it does not need, but the kingdom of God produces joy because it is exactly what we need. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, describes joy like this. Unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both, uh, from both happiness and pleasure. Joy has indeed one characteristic and only one in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. So to know joy, to know the way of the Lord, uh, it's this thing that is so pure, so in its essence good, that it, it fills us to satisfaction, but yet still leaves us wanting more of it. Where everything else in this world, wealth, power, money, possessions, it doesn't even satisfy us, but it still leaves us wanting more. And that doesn't create joy in us, but it creates this, this angst, this tension, this longing that we, I think, all have that can only be filled by the true joy of the kingdom of heaven. And again, because this is the kingdom giving out of its overflow, where everything else demands, takes, and will steal from us, the kingdom of God is giving in abundance. So this is the first parable, and the next one is pretty similar to it, starting verse 45 of chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So again, this one is very simple. But now we have a merchant who is skilled. He's an expert in his field. He's looking, instead of the man who just kind of stumbled upon a field, he is looking for a fine pearl. And when he finds it, he gives everything to have it. But there's one thing we need to notice that's a bit different is that the merchant, there was one looking for fine pearls when he found one of great value. You see, so often what we want to do in the rest of our life is to hedge our bets. How many things will bring me joy that I can invest in a little bit? But what Jesus is saying, that's not how kingdom uh, economy works. It is one or nothing, one or all, that there's one true thing that will give us life. Uh, and this man gives everything to have it. Um, with this man as well, this merchant, what we find is interesting that he really not only gives up all of his possessions, but he gives up his identity as a merchant, his, his job, his occupation. Uh, because a merchant who has no other wealth to buy things and has one product to sell is not a merchant. He's just a guy who's holding like the guts of a clam, right? Like he's no longer a merchant. He's just a guy with this one thing that he owns. But it is worth everything to give it up to have. It is the one thing of great value. We cannot diversify our, our kingdom portfolios. So what we see is that the kingdom of heaven, the treasures that we are investing in are going to do three things, that they create a joy that is unlike any other. It is the good life that we are off ask, looking for and asking the Lord to give us, but it is going to require everything. That's simply the way of the kingdom. We can't have one foot in and one foot out, that the kingdom of God is going to require we give up everything. And we're going to talk about what that means. And then again, there is only one. There is no other fine pearl. There's no other field with treasure. There is one that Jesus is inviting us into. And this is the kingdom of heaven. So let's get into our main text here. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Let's read this again. 
Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Notice how the man begins this interaction. Uh, Even in how he's asking for this eternal life, it's in a possessive kind of earthly way. He says, uh, how do I get eternal life? How do I possess it? How do I own it? How can I manage it, right? How can I get my hands on it? Uh, This is just the way that man thinks. This is how he deals with his great possessions, as we're going to see. This is how he deals with his day-to-day interactions. And he asks, how do I get this? But what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to immediately flip the script, that this is just not how the kingdom works. It's not something that we own. It's not something that we can have, but it's something that we enter into. It's something that we live into. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is not so much what uh, belongs to us, but what and who we belong to. Is that we have to change how we think about our possessions and our lives in Christ. It's not what I can get out of it or what can I use it for. But what is the life Jesus inviting me into? What is this new kingdom that I have to enter into, that I have to submit to and give up all to have? And the next, this is what we read. The man asked about, you know, what, are the, what is the good thing I have to do? What must I do to get eternal life? Because you see, the man is asking the question that we all are asking, how do I get eternal life? And for people who follow Jesus, we believe that it's something that we have now and will experience for eternity. What is the taste of eternity now? What what is the life Jesus is inviting me into? And Jesus says this, again, there is only one who is good. There is only one who is good. Again, Jesus is flipping the script that the one true good, the only thing that we need is God. That this, really to believe this is to believe that in God's nature, he is good, that he cannot be wicked, he cannot be bad, he cannot be selfish, he cannot take from us, but it is desiring to give his people good gifts. And I think what this does is shows us two things, is that anything and everything in this world points to God's goodness in some way. But at the exact same time, it, it shows the shadow that none of these things compare to God's ultimate goodness. That in our hearts, we have to believe that there is no other good, no other option besides God and God alone. This is how God's people have thought of God uh, for, for the history of its people. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Psalm 16, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Psalm 84, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk, whose walk is blameless. Uh, again, when I was living in Houston, I was talking to a student who was just really questioning faith. You know, is this, this thing right? Is it true? Like, I don't know if I agree with the rules and the things in Scripture, um, so we talked about that. We went back and forth on the things he might not have agreed with, the things that he didn't appreciate that made him to choose to back away from faith. And we went back and forth, back and forth. There's always another answer. There's always another question to ask. At the end of our conversation, I, I just had to leave it with, you know, a lot of times this doesn't make 
make sense, right? Faith oftentimes does not make sense, that we believe in a God who is unseen, who we have to just believe and have faith in. Um, it doesn't make sense that uh, Jesus followers, Christians are generous, that we give what we have to other people. There's so much of faith that does not make sense. But it does if you know and truly believe that God is the ultimate good. And that's not something we can force on other people. That's not something we can just uh, teach them. That, you know, just, okay, it says it here in Scripture. But we, each of us, have to know in the depths of our hearts and souls that there's nothing else good in this world besides God. And I believe that person because of Scripture, because of other people showing me the way that in my own life I've experienced the goodness of God. Because when we know what the truth of God is, who God is, that He is our ultimate good, not only does this give us hope and joy like nothing else, but it distinctly shows us that the wickedness and the non-good that is in the world around us. That I know that money and wealth is not going to do it, so I'm going to say no over and over and over again. Because so much of this happens daily and daily and after time and time again. That we choose to know that God is the ultimate good in a moment, but also day after day. That we're going to choose God as our ultimate good. And this is not something we can force on other people, but each of us have to decide and say, God is the ultimate good, that there is no other that I'm going to choose to invest in fully than God alone. But let's keep going on. So Jesus says, if you want this one good thing, if you want to enter life, not just get it, not just own it, but to enter the kingdom of God, keep the commandments. And this is what Jesus says. Just then, uh, oh, let's go back. Uh, the man asked, which ones? He, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? So he asked, you know, which commandments? You know, this is a righteous, uh, righteous man of the Lord. He keeps the commandments. And he says, I've kept all of these. But notice, these are all kind of the second half commandments. It's all the horizontal ones, the, the ones that are visible, the ones that we can kind of put out there and share. Yeah, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. I, I honor my mother and my father. Uh, and Jesus here is really referencing all the Ten Commandments just by referencing a few. But the man says, I, I have kept all of these. But notice what the man says. This is, this is fascinating. He says, what do I still lack? So I think what we find in this man is the longing that we all have. Is that I, I've done all the good things. I, I'm doing my best, but I still feel this inner emptiness within. That this man came seeking the, the eternal life, the kingdom of heaven. And he says, I'm still lacking. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't tell the man that he's lacking right? But he says, what, what is it that I still lack? That there's something within this man that is just simply not lining up. There's something that he is longing for that he is missing, that he just simply does not seem to have. And you have to wonder if his great wealth that we know that he has is clouding that, like we talked about earlier. When we go all into everything, we only get a little bit of it. That so much of our possessions, our wealth, our family, our, our communities that we choose to invest in, it clouds, you know, what is it inside of me that just isn't right? What isn't making sense? Where am I still lacking? What am I still longing for? And this is what Jesus says in response. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure 
in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. We need to talk about this word perfect. Uh, the Greek word is teleos, and it really means to almost like complete a race. It's to finish a goal, to be whole, to be made complete. So this is less about like moral perfection of like, I've kept all the laws perfectly. And more, if you want to be whole, if you want to be filled, this is the way. This is what he's offering. That what Jesus is saying, I can offer you something that is going to last, something that is going to be uh, full. But notice this isn't like a transaction. This isn't, hey, if you want to be whole, if you want to be perfect, just sell all you have and that's it. No, the, the selling of the things is, is um, you know, just the letting go to come and follow Jesus. That, that seems to be what the joyful life is, to come and follow Jesus. So this word perfect is in stark contrast to the lacking. Do you notice that? That the man is lacking, and Jesus is saying, I can make you whole, I can make you perfect, but we're going to have to let go of a few things first. So this is what he invites other men to do. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Uh, go here, again, just kind of uh, illustrates this immediacy to what uh, we ought to do with the kingdom of God. Uh, just like the man and the merchant, they immediately went and sold everything to have it. Uh, go and give this up now. That this is the true path that we need to follow. Um, but notice here, he says to go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. So if this was a righteous Jewish man who kept the commandments, who kept the laws, part of the law keeping was to give alms. So this man had done this before. He would given to the poor probably pretty generously compared to most who could. But the key here is to go and sell your possessions and then give to the poor. To enter into the kingdom of God requires a sacrifice, just like the man who finds the field. That what I think Jesus is inviting us into is not to just give out of our abundance, but that we have to count the cost, that, that we have to feel it, that we're going to have to give rid of something. This isn't about, you know, Smith talked about God or mammon, that we have an altar for mammon or we have an altar for God. Uh, but to just give more, to just sell, you know, give to the poor, um, is really just to try to build a bigger altar of God over mammon. But what Jesus is saying, destroy, wreck, relentlessly destroy uh, your altar of stuff. That you're going to have to get rid of this to enter into the kingdom of God, to come and follow me. So not only do we have to just give things, but we have to like sell our stuff and then give away what we have. But then we also see that it's to give to the poor. And there's two things I want to mention here about this. One is that the poor in this time would have been people they knew, that, that you need to give to your community, that you need to give to those who are on your left and right, who you bump shoulders with. Uh, there was not this culture of we just drive past people who are homeless on the side of the street, but they walked, that they knew people who were suffering. So to actively choose to not give was this kind of affront to loving God and loving neighbor, that we give to the poor. That that is just what we do. So what God is doing here is almost like a double redemptive act. Not only is it opening up the hearts of us who are giving, but it's redeeming the social class. It's redeeming those who are in need. It's to give both. Um, that's what give to the poor. It's this giving to, to those who are in need, giving of the community, the people that we know. But notice, though, that give away. He, he walked away sad. He walked away grieved, sorrowful because he had great wealth. 
that he had many things. This is interesting because this is probably the only time in Scripture where Jesus is given a personal invitation to discipleship. Uh, you know, he talks to the crowds, he, he does the Sermon on the Mount, but this seems to be the only time in the Gospels where Jesus says directly to one person, come and follow me, and it's rejected. And because of that, the man walks away sorrowful. He walks away because he simply cannot let go of his stuff, his things. And I think that's what we kind of really need to get to. The final tension we need to talk about is that we, we choose this every day. We choose to live into the joy of the Lord or we keep experiencing sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. And for many of us, it is money, that we live so dependently on money that we never have to rely and depend on God. But we often know that there are other things that keep us from going all in. Often it's this question of, is God really good? Is he worth giving my life to? Is he worth the full investment of what I have? Is he going to love what he sees? If I give everything to the Lord, if I lay it bare out for him, is he going to forgive me? Is he going to love me the same if I give him everything? Will I be joyful? Will I be happy at the end of this if I give everything? And so many of us, we, we question, uh, you know, will I still just be loved if I am known by God fully? Or what if I give everything and God calls me to go down a path that I just simply don't want to do? I don't want to go there. I don't want to give that up, Lord. But what we again have to get back to, that God is just the ultimate good, the fullness of what uh, we have, of what we need is God and God alone. Uh, it seemed that this man had uh, not only had possessions, but his possessions had him. There's a story, you know, who knows if it's true or not, but in 1860, there's a ship going from Panama to the United States. Uh, the ship ended up sinking, 400 passengers died, and there was a wealthy man on the ship that was said to have, you know, been carrying 200 pounds of gold. And as the ship was sinking, he wanted to save his wealth. So what does he do? But he straps the gold onto his body. And of course, we know he drowns with the 400 other people. Um, and someone was reflecting on this story. An author was writing about it. And he wondered, he wondered this. Had he got the gold or had the gold got him? And what we find about money and wealth is that the gold always gets us. That the wealth is always going to consume us and take us. That so much of what we are longing for is that to be filled by something that is more abundant than what this world has to offer. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, he was a, a Benedictine monk in the 11th century. He, he writes this. I find this interesting. There is no greater misery than false joys. Uh, that so many of the things that we look to invest in, to uh, to you know, find joy and happiness are just simply false. They're not full. And this seems to be the greatest misery that we can know. Just, just like the rich man who walks away sad, sorrowful, is that we oftentimes live in sorrow, live in sadness, because we simply cannot let go of what God has for us, the life that he is inviting us into. So let's just review before we get into our uh, last movement. Treasures in heaven. There's a, there's a difference in that we've got to give to have the treasures in heaven. We don't, we don't get it. We don't possess it. We don't own it. That so often we feel this lacking uh, from what we are trying to be uh, fulfilled by. But what Jesus is offering is wholeness. He's offering us completeness. And then, of course, we, we see the sorrow of the rich man is in stark contrast to the joy that the man has in selling all he has to get the field. 
So I think we have to wonder, well, what do we do with this? How, how do I live fully all into the kingdom of God? Uh, and this is what Jesus has to say about it. <clears throat> Actually, let's, let's go back. We'll get into that. Uh, how do we fully give up what Jesus is asking for? So I want to talk about three ways to, to do this. Uh, is this uh, physical, spiritual, or relational? I think it's going to be all, all three of these. Because um, oftentimes when we read The Rich Young Man, we're left wondering, well, you know, is this just like the rich young man's thing like that he's struggling with? Like his was possessions, mine might be another idol. Um, and I like how this commentator puts it. He says, so we think that riches just happen to be this young man's idols. Jesus then is commanding us to sell all our possessions. He's only con- uh, demanding total submission to himself. This interpretation is both unquestionably true and obviously inadequate. To say no more is to miss the fact that possessions are the most common idol for rich Christians today. Jesus must have meant it when he added, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So I, I think we can't just blow by the physical, the, the financial aspect, and just get to the spiritual. But that we have to take seriously the, the physical, financial invitation that God is inviting us into. Uh, so I want to give a few ways to do this. Um, the first is, you know, consider on December 10th, uh, what are you going to give on Giving Sunday? That I think what Jesus is inviting us to do is to look in our storehouses, to look inward and say, uh, do, do I feel my giving? Or is it something I just chop off 10% at the end of the day? Because what Jesus seems to be inviting us into, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we have to count the cost and remove anything and everything that's getting in between us and the Lord. So think about our finances. Uh, where, where do I f- need to feel it? Am I feeling my giving? Am I giving out of uh, sacrifice and uh, discomfort? I think is what the Lord is inviting us into. But the, the hope is that we do this to be shaped and formed just deeper into the joy of the Lord. Let me, let me read this. Uh, this comes from a book called Practicing the King's Economy by Michael Rhodes, who actually is a pastor here in Memphis. He says this, Giving casts down money from the thrones of our hearts. When we release our grip on money, we free up our hearts for worship and our hands for work in God's kingdom. When we give, the Spirit inhabits our generosity and works to reshape us in the image of our generous God. Our giving is nothing more than grace of God abounding in us. His generosity flowing through us enriches us and draws our hearts deep into the joy of our Father who loves us lavishly. So our, our giving financially, physically, is going to change us, mold us into people who desire and notice the, the goodness of God in our life every day, to know the lavished love of the, of the Lord in us. I think, secondly, there's this spiritual component as well, that we have to look inward to say, what are other things keeping my heart's attention and devotion from the Lord? Uh, and this takes, I think, personal examination. Is, is it a fear? Is it a relationship? Is it a, 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 a deciding to believe or to not believe? Um, I always like thinking about this, like we need to push until it hurts. Uh, what by, I mean by this is when I was younger, you know, going to the dentist, typically I always had a few cavities when I'd go. And, you know, the dentist would be kind of poking, checking the teeth, and all of a sudden it's sharp pain. It's like, well, yeah, there, there's the cavity, there's the infection. So when we think about our hearts and our souls, what would it look like to, with the grace and love of the Lord, to examine and to push until it hurts? What is the thing that I need to spiritually release, spiritually give up to the Lord so I can live into the kingdom 
fully. And lastly, I think we need to think relationally, that so much of what the kingdom is going to be is a community. I think what is also so devastating about the rich young man walking away is that Jesus says, give everything you have and come and follow me. But we know that anytime Jesus says, come and follow me, it's just not a personal, private relationship with him. But he was inviting people into a discipleship and community, that there was the 12 disciples, there was Mary and Martha and these uh, family members or friends that were with him, that it was to be a part of a people. So often our, our finances or the things that we choose to be dependent on uh, kind of makes us back away from community. Because if I can fulfill my own needs with money, why do I need anyone else? You know, if I can buy everything I have, why do I need anyone else? But I think what Jesus is inviting us into is to say, lean into the kingdom. Not only is that a physical and a spiritual thing, but it's a communal, it's a relational aspect. Uh, we see this in Jesus' words. So after Jesus said this, the disciples were kind of in awe of like, how is this possible? Who can enter into this? And Jesus says this, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So I've got to point it out. This word houses here is oikos. Uh, it's their household. It's the family and what Jesus is saying is if you are able to go all in for the Lord, to give up everything, then in the kingdom of heaven, there is a hundredfold waiting for us. So I think what Jesus is inviting us into is that there is a community, there is an oikos times a hundred that he is inviting us into. That when we let go, Jesus is always going to be gracious and generous and abundant to us. So that's a, that's a physical thing, that's a spiritual thing, but it's a relational piece as well. Will we live in community with one another? Will we live together? So I think many of us are wondering, you know, is this possible? I mean, this is what the disciples were asking, how is this possible? And this is what the words that Jesus says as he ends this encounter with the rich young man. When the disciples heard this, they, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I, I think many of us desire th this good life, the joyful life that is living into the kingdom of heaven, that is investing and storing up in treasures on earth. But many are just wondering, I, I've tried this. I, I've tried going all in, and then I just go back to my old ways. I, I want this but it just seems impossible. And I think the hope that we need to sit on and leave with is that this is only possible with God. How am I supposed to go all in for the Lord? And the question is that the Lord has already gone, gone all in for me, that we worship and obey and follow a God that became flesh, that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world, leaving the treasures, leaving the thrones that came to earth, that he lived a life of uh, did not have a home, did not have a family. He had no place to rest his head. He had no job. He just had a gospel good news to preach. And that's what he did. And we can leave it at that and say this was a life that went all in for people. But we also know that that's not where the story ends. 
that Jesus, in his generosity, uh, in his pursuit of, of bringing the kingdom on earth, he went to the cross. He, he chose the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate giving up, and that was death, that he gave up life. And that ought to have been the, the final step, the final move, but we know that we rely on a God who has lived a resurrection life, whose victory has come. So I think if we're left wondering, how am I able to do this? How is this possible? And the answer is that Jesus has done it first, that we follow an example of Jesus who has gone all in. But not only that, but because grace lives in us, because the spirit of the Lord lives in us, it is Christ who does it to me, not me on my own. So as we, we think about giving up our wealth and our possessions to seek a generous life, as we think about, you know, what are the other spiritual things I'm holding on to? What's keeping me from living in community Yes, God is going to require something of us, but it's because first Jesus has done himself, and now he's pushing us to do it with him, that Jesus is in us and for us. And this is possible. So if you hear nothing else this evening, that this is possible. It is possible to live a life all in with the Lord, and it's only because of the Lord that we can do that. So if you would, please stand, and I'll close this out in prayer, and you can go get your kids. Galatians chapter 2 says this. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Holy Father, we long for your goodness and presence. Even if we don't know that that's what it is, we all long for you. So often we live a life of sorrow and sadness with, without, without knowing where to go or who it is that we need. Father, I pray that we live this place knowing that you are the ultimate good, that it is you who makes this possible to live a life of joy and goodness, to, to find purpose and meaning in who we are with one another. So Father, I pray that you give us grace, that as we stumble and move forward in our generosity and our giving and our dealing with money, that we would find a way that brings you along in it, that gives up everything for you to have this treasure in heaven. That is your kingdom, that is your grace, that is presence with you for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go get your kids.